It's time for the Des Moines Register on Thursday, November 16. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Twyla Glenn, and my partner at the microphone for the next th six, for the next 90 minutes is Linda Lundgren. For our first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer Voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. According to AccuWeather, it's going to become windier and warmer today with clouds and sun. Winds south-southwest at 15 to 25 miles per hour. The forecast through the weekend looks like this today and tonight, a high of 69 and a low of 31. Clouds and sun today, winds south-southwest 15 to 25 miles per hour. Rather cloudy tonight with a shower, winds northwest 12 to 25 miles per hour. On Friday, a high of 48 and a low of 31, sunny and cooler. Saturday, look for a high of 60, a low of 34 and sunny and milder. On Sunday, a high of 58, the low of 39, partly sunny and mild. And looking at recent precipitation in the 24 hours ending 4 p.m. Wednesday, we had zero precipitation. The month to date, we have had zero precipitation against a normal of 1.03 inches. Our year to date has been 23.13 inches against a normal of 34 and 9 hundredths of an inch. Last year to date, we had seen 28.57 inches. Sunrise today was at 7.04 a.m., sunset tonight, 4.54 p.m., moonrise today, 10.50 a.m., and moonset today at 7.23 p.m. Turning now to the headlines on the front page of the register, thieves are stealing trees from public and private lands. Rules aim to facilitate book band compliance, and Des Moines is facing historic cuts in bus routes and service from, the, from DART, the bus service. And now here with the first story is Linda. Well, I'll read the story about the trees being stolen. Timber theft, a growing problem, and can be profitable for crooks. People stealing trees from public and private land in Iowa is an infrequent but growing occurrence, according to state conservation officers. The crimes range considerably in their scope and sophistication, and the value of the heist can be lucrative. Some of the culprits might haul their looted timber with ramshackle trailers. Others might have full-on logging rigs. Some of the thefts happen out in the open, such as when a company is contracted to harvest timber from a certain area, but oversteps its bounds to cut down a valuable-looking tree on an adjacent property. A prime black walnut trunk can fetch upwards of $10,000. Other thefts are conducted in the dead of night. In one recent instance, a thief was cutting trees in an area near a highway and would only operate his chainsaw when the sound of passing traffic would cover its noise. 
timber theft was something we never used to see, and now it's become a bigger thing, said Craig Cutts, chief of the Iowa Department of Natural Resources Law Enforcement Bureau. He said perhaps the most egregious recent offense happened in Pocahontas County last year when someone cut more than 100 trees from a state wildlife management area. One of the trees was a bur oak with a trunk about six feet in diameter. That tree was a sapling when Iowa was made a state, Cutts said. It's incredible somebody would cut that down. The DNR does not keep a reliable list of timber theft reports, but Captain Brian Smith, who oversees the Bureau's region of southwest Iowa, estimates that the department has investigated about a dozen in the past two years. All across Iowa, timber theft has either been on the increased or at least it's being recognized on a larger scale than it used to, he said. I believe it's the former of the two that it has increased, and it has been increasing for a number of years. The cause of that uptick is unclear. Smith speculates that a growing number of absentee landowners, those who own land but seldom set foot on it, gives potential thieves more opportunities and decreases the public surveillance of wider rural areas. And while thieves have incentive to steal high-dollar trees worth thousands of dollars, they're also taking low-dollar softwoods that can be made into pallets. They're much, much less valuable, Smith said, but if you can steal it, and it's free to begin with, a few bucks is better than nothing. In the case of the giant bur oak theft in northwest Iowa, the alleged culprit said he planned to build a house out of logs, according to court records. In October 2022, two DNR officers investigated a report that someone was illegally cutting trees from the Stoddard Wildlife Management Area near Rolfe. While the officers were on site, they noticed a vehicle pulling a trailer that turned off of the nearby roadway onto a trail that led to the state property, according to court records. The officers followed and found Jason Levant Ferguson, 41, who lives nearby. They noted the area was blanketed with vehicle trails, cut trees, branches, tree stumps, and limbs. It's illegal in Iowa to harvest trees from state land without DNR approval. Ferguson allegedly admitted to the officers that he had been cutting down trees in the wildlife management area that looked like they were dying. Jason told the officers about a large tree that he had cut down, and it was so large that it took him weeks to get it out of the timber, having multiple issues, including tires going flat under the extreme weight according to documents associated with a search warrant. The officers asked if they could go to Ferguson's acreage to see the large log, and he obliged, court records show. 
There they saw hundreds of logs piled on the property, and Ferguson allegedly admitted that most of them came from the state-owned area. Ferguson could not be reached to comment for this article. Another officer obtained a search warrant for the property to collect further evidence, and they seized a significant amount of logging equipment. Two trailers, a chain hoist, numerous chainsaws, a winch, and other items. He was charged with felony theft for taking trees from the wildlife management area, along with 50 counts each for timber buyer violations and prohibited destructive acts. But the prosecution of many of those charges unraveled last month when a district court judge decided that the search warrants were improperly approved. Magistrate Ben Meyer, who signed the warrants, also was certified by the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy to be a legal instructor for reserve officers of the Pocahontas Police Department and was identified by the Academy as an employee of that department at the time he endorsed the warrants, according to court records. That violated a constitutional separation of powers requirement because Meyer was a representative of both the judicial and executive branches of state government. District Court Judge Derek Johnson decided, It is this court's finding that the search warrants in question are not valid because they were not endorsed and signed by a neutral and detached magistrate. Johnson wrote in an October 18th order. The drug and gun charges have been dismissed, court records show, and prosecutors can't use the evidence obtained for the tree thefts from the searches. Still, the DNR had the evidence that led to the search warrants, including Ferguson's alleged admission he took the trees, and the tree-related charges are set for trial this month. Pocahontas County Attorney Dan Feisner confirmed that his prosecution of the timber thefts will continue, but declined to comment further about the case. <clears throat> A review of court documents associated with timber violations shows at least one other prosecutorial misstep a criminal charge against a Bloomfield man in 2018 was dismissed because of how it was filed in court. The man was accused of buying timber without posting a bond with the state, which is a serious misdemeanor and punishable by up to a year in jail. But the charging officer filed it with a citation form that is most often used for traffic violations and didn't include specific details of the alleged crime. Citing the lack of detail, a judge dismissed the charge. Timber buyers who agree to pay people to harvest their trees are required to set aside up to $15,000 to cover those sales if they don't actually pay. Small-time small loggers who aren't stealing trees are occasionally cited for violating that law, DNR records show. The state maintains a database of bonded timber buyers to help protect against improper sales and tree thefts, 
which can be difficult to uncover and investigate. In some circumstances, it's tough, said Smith, who oversees DNR law enforcement in southwest Iowa. We've had completely legitimate bonded timber buyers logging one property, and they get across the property line, not realizing it. Others might cross that line because they see that big $10,000 black walnut tree, and they think, well, what the heck? If I sneak over there and grab it, nobody will notice. The DNR often relies on its staff to detect potential timber thefts from public property during routine walkthroughs. Thefts from private property are often aided by landowners and their neighbors. In 2020, two men stole seven walnut trees from an acreage near Central City in eastern Iowa, according to court records. They were identified with the help of surveillance video recordings from a neighboring property. Last year, a man who had claimed he was cutting down walnut trees in rural Persia in western Iowa on behalf of the Iowa Department of Transportation was identified with the help of a suspicious neighbor who photographed the man's truck. The man had stolen 17 trees worth about $1,000, court records show. Rules aim to facilitate book ban compliance. Iowa schools have been waiting for them for months, and now they're here. Long-awaited rules intended to help teachers and administrators comply with an expansive new education law, banning sexually explicit books and placing restrictions on accommodating gender identity for students. The Iowa Board of Education discussed the proposed rules Wednesday, just a few weeks before penalties go into effect January 1 of 2024 for schools that fail to comply with Senate File 496. The law requires the removal of all school books that depict sexual acts, bars discussion and instruction through sixth grade pertaining to gender identity and sexual orientation, and requires school administrators to alert a student's caregiver if the child wants to use pronouns that differ from their sex assigned at birth. Wednesday's conversation marks the beginning of the board's process to incorporate the rules into Iowa's general accreditation standards, said Heather Doe, the Iowa Department of Education spokesperson. Here's what we know about the rules the Iowa Board of Education is proposing. First, do the rules clarify what schools should consider a qualifying sex act for removal of a book? Yes, the proposed rules bar visual and written description of sex acts in books, but clarify that reference or mentions that do not describe or visually depict a sex act are allowable. Will there be penalties if schools do not remove books that violate the law? Under Senate File 496, schools must remove books that feature sex acts. Administrators and employees who fail to remove books could face a written reprimand for the first offense. Additional violations could lead to a hearing before the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners and possibly disciplinary action. The new rules, if approved as is, provide some grace. If a violation is what the rules call voluntary and permanently corrected before the department makes a decision, officials may exercise enforcement discretion according to the proposed rules. 
Do schools have to track all the books in their libraries? Yes. Schools must either make available a comprehensive list of all books available to all students in libraries offered by the district on its website in real time, or they must post an updated list at least two times per calendar year. School districts can ask for a waiver for two school years if they do not have an online card catalog, said Thomas Myers, the Iowa Department of Education general counsel, during the board's meetings. Next question, will the state keep a list of removed books? No. An earlier version of the education law would have required the Department of Education to maintain a list of books removed from schools, but the final law does not, Myers told the board. I think the more efficient thing is superintendents talking to each other and sharing information rather than a master list of books, he said. The register is compiling a list of removed books using the open records law. Next question, do the rules address school libraries that serve multiple grades? Yes, school libraries serving multiple grades are expected to exercise reasonable physical, administrative, and technological controls, as quoting from the proposed rule, to ensure students have access only to materials that are grade and age appropriate. What if a book mentions an LGBTQ character? The rules allow for books to have what it calls neutral mentions of LGBTQ characters, Myers said. This includes an observation regarding a book character's sexual orientation or general identity that stops short of being a promotion. Again, quoting from the proposed rule. The neutral mention is meant as a safe harbor for school staff, he said. A Des Moines Register investigation shows school district officials across the state have removed children's books under Senate File 496 that mention LGBTQ characters. The removed books include Melissa by Alex Gino, Who Was Harvey Milk by Corrine Grinnepole, and And Tango Makes Three by John Richardson and Peter Parnell. I'm going to pause here and tell you about a, an article that is a picture that's accompanying this article. It says a number of books that have been challenged in Iowa in recent years, and it shows a bookshelf with these books uh, on it. Uh, the Hate You Give, All Boys Aren't Blue, Hey Kiddo, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, This Book is Gay, Gender Queer, and Melissa. And that would be just a small section, a selection of books that are under question here. Continuing with the questions, what about districts that share resources with public libraries? Ahead of the new school year, about a half dozen Iowa public school districts and public libraries that share a building or services scrambled to find a way to keep those partnerships intact. According to the proposal, only library programs operated by a school district are subject to the Board of Education rules pertaining to Senate File 496. What happens if my child asks to be identified by a different gender at school? If a student requests an accommodation to affirm their gender identity from a staff member, including addressing the student using a name or pronoun different from the one assigned in the school district's registration, the staff member must report the request to an administrator who must notify the student's parent or guardian. What if my child wants to use a nickname at school? 
The proposed rule states that a student can be called by a nickname without first receiving a parent or guardian's permission if the name change is not being used to affirm a student's gender identity. Before the start of the school year, some Iowa schools require permission from a student's parent or guardian for anything besides a student's given name. For example, before Michael could go by Mike. The proposed rules still instruct school officials to seek permission if a student wants to go by a name other than their legal name or use pronouns that do not correspond with their sex assigned at birth. If the request is an accommodation intended to affirm a student's gender identity, quoting again from the rules. Can the public weigh in on the proposed rules? In-person public hearings on the proposed rules are scheduled from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. January 3 and 10.30 to 11 a.m. January 4 in the State Boardroom of the Grimes State Office Building at 400 East 14th Street in Des Moines. Written comments can be sent to the Iowa Department of Education's General Counsel, Thomas Mays, by email at thomas.mays, that's thomas, common spelling, dot mays, M-A-Y-E-S, at iowa.gov, or by calling 515-281-8661. Written comments can be addressed to Thomas A. Mays, Iowa Department of Education, Grimes State Office Building, 400 East 14th Street, Des Moines, Iowa, 50319. And the final question, how did we get here? Republicans say Senate File 496 was necessary after a small number of Iowa parents came forward with complaints about the complexity of challenging materials and the fact that the challenges rarely resulted in the learning materials being removed. A Des Moines Register survey of all 327 Iowa public school districts earlier this year showed only 100 documented challenges were filed between August 2020 and May of 2023. Few of those challenges led to books being removed or restricted. By comparison, the new law paired with no state guidance has led Iowa's 325 public school districts to remove more than 1,000 books, according to a new register survey. The removed books include classics like George Orwell's 1984 and one of the country's most banned and challenged books, Gender Queer, by Marsha Kobabi. The number of schools changed because two public school districts closed and or consolidated between the 2022-23 and the 2023-24 school years. Des Moines facing historic cuts to bus routes and service from DART. Des Moines could see a 40% reduction in bus service if the City Council does not approve a new funding model for the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, the agency has announced. The state's only regional transit system, which is primarily funded through property taxes, is on track to hit an estimated $3 million deficit for services by fiscal year 2025. Under the proposed cuts, most routes would run every hour instead of every 30 minutes, service would be limited on weekends with fewer buses on Sundays, and buses would be limited throughout the day, with some routes running only at peak travel times. The first round of service cuts 
could begin in November 2024, affecting nearly all local bus routes in Des Moines, according to a news release Tuesday from DART. Cuts could happen over five years. Alternatively, the City Council could vote to increase its franchise fee, a tax on gas and electric bills, up to 2.5% to fund public transit, a step that was authorized this year by state lawmakers. That would result in no cuts to current bus routes and service levels, according to DART. DART is seeking input on the proposals in public meetings and online comments until December 15th. Well, why does DART face a potential cut in bus service? ...in 2021 that takes into account the population and level of service in each of its 11 cities and Polk County, which is being phased in to prevent causing any significant impact to any city's budget. Because Des Moines uses about 74% of the system's services, the capital city eventually will fund the bulk of what participating communities pay in property taxes, about 49%. But the city of Des Moines has reached its 95-cent tax levy cap imposed by the state legislature, which is the driving force behind the proposed franchise fee increase, according to a news release from DART. If the city of Des Moines does not contribute additional funding above what it can collect through property taxes, DART will need to make the most significant cuts to bus service in the agency's history, the release said. What are the options to prevent DART service cuts? The city has contributed $9.8 million to DART this year, but it needs to reach $17.5 million in 2029 under the new funding formula. Des Moines could instead impose a franchise fee that could generate enough revenue to maintain bus service at the current level and reduce property taxes for the next few years, the DART news release says. Should the city approve a 2.5% franchise fee, a Des Moines resident with a $100 monthly utility bill would see about a $30 increase per year. It also would make nonprofits and government agencies, which don't pay property taxes, pay into DART. About 40% of Des Moines' land was tax exempt in 2020. Currently, an owner of a $200,000 home in Des Moines pays $103 a year in property taxes to DART. The City Council is expected to consider the franchise fee early in 2024. In a mayoral forum hosted by the NAACP in October, both Mayor-elect Connie Bozen and Councilmember Josh Mandelbaum said they would support a franchise fee. <clears throat> what about suburban communities? 
The DART Commission also will consider a redesign of suburban service ahead of fiscal year 2026 budget discussions. For fiscal year 2025, DART will invest $2.5 million in one-time funds and suburban communities will raise their property tax levies to cover the deficit. A homeowner of a $200,000 home will see their property tax bill increase in the range of $1.16 to $7.99, according to DART. <coughs> Excuse me. Who are the people these cuts would affect? According to statistics from DART, 61% of central Iowans who use the regional bus system don't have a car, and 57% of riders use DART to get to work. The organization says 96% of non-riders find value in its service. Public transit is an essential service intended to provide every central Iowan the opportunity to fully participate in our communities, regardless of ability or income. DART Commission Chair and West Des Moines Mayor Russ Trimble said in the news release, Many of the individuals who use DART do not have other transportation options, which means a significant reduction in bus service will impact those who rely on public transit as part of their daily lives. And the last question, how can I provide input on DART's cuts? Attend a public meeting to hear more about the proposed cuts and Des Moines options. And here they are, November 30th at 6 to 7 p.m. at the Northwest Community Center on Franklin Avenue. December 1st, noon to 1 p.m., virtual via Zoom. December 4th, 6 to 7 p.m. at the East Side Library at 2559 Hubble Avenue. December 6th, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., open house at the Dart Central Station, 620 Cherry Street. <coughs> December 7th, 6 to 7 p.m., the Des Moines Public Schools Kurtz Opportunity Center, 1000 Porter Avenue. Lastly, December 12th, 6 to 7 p.m., at the Des Moines Area Religious Council at 100 Army Post Road. That concludes the front page sections of the Des Moines Register. We'll move now to Metro and Iowa. Our first story, ISU panel votes to keep the Cat Hall name. An Iowa State University committee voted to keep the name Carrie Chapman Cat Hall, despite decades of efforts to rename the building that some say is connected to a racist past. The 15 voting members of the Committee for Consideration of Removing Names from University Property voted 11-4 to 4 in favor of retaining the name, falling short of the two-thirds vote requirement needed to submit a recommendation for the name's removal. Iowa State President Wendy Winterstein is issued a statement that said the recommendation was received favorably. The committee has methodically dealt with an extremely complicated task, Winterstein said.
The committee members had to come to grips with history that is told and understood from different perspectives across the century. Theirs was an extraordinary commitment of time and effort. With thoughtful consideration of factual and historical materials, the committee deeply examined an important and complex historical figure, Winterstein concluded. The university published the Cat Hall Review final report, a 46-page report detailing not only the history of Cat Hall, but also the building's namesake and student movements both in support of and opposition to the name. Cat championed the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution that gave women the right to vote in 1920. She, she graduated from Iowa State in 1880 and received an honorary Doctor of Laws degree in 1921, according to the committee's report. Cat succeeded Susan B. Anthony as president of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She died in 1947. But Cat was also accused of upholding racist rhetoric in previous publications, and protesters on campus in 2020 accused her of upholding white supremacy. In a collection of essays published in 1917, Cat stated that, quote, white supremacy will be strengthened by women's suffrage, end quote, while objecting to a notion that women gaining the right to vote, quote, will increase the Negro vote, end quote. Officials from the Carrie Chapman Cat Center for Women and Politics at Iowa State University have said the quote is based on secondary sources and have been challenged in its factual basis. According to the committee's report, the building was established in 1890 and dubbed Agricultural Hall. Departments housed in the building fluctuated, and in 1928, the Botany Department moved in, which ushered in the name Botany Hall. After the department moved out, the building was named Old Botany Hall. It was not until the summer of 1990 that the Board of Regents approved a request to change the name to Cat Hall. In September, on September 29, 1995, one week before Cat Hall was dedicated, Iowa State's Black Student Alliance published an essay in their newsletter, Uhuru, exclamation point, that's in uh, capital letters, that's a Swahili word, I believe, titled, The Cat's Out of the Bag, Was She Racist? That was the title of the Black Student Alliance news report essay. At one point, the feminist movement was the most fervent advocate of the abolitionist movement, wrote Marin Wood, uh, Woodswosen, an Iowa State sophomore and author of the essay. The two movements support and promote each other's causes. From the white women's suffrage perspective, however, there seemed to be a conflict of interest in the two movements. That's the end of the quote from the essay. Iowa State students attempted to name the building after her long before 1974. At the time, Iowa State's government of the student body passed a resolution formally supporting the renaming of the building in Cat's honor. According to the report, the resolution stated that not only was Ms. Cat active in getting the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution passed, but as a student, she helped start the first organized women's physical activity on the Iowa State campus. The committee reviewed nearly 250 historical documents from libraries, archives, and databases around the country and interviewed 12 persons with expertise on CAT and events surrounding the building's naming, according to an article on Inside Iowa State.
Angie Hunt, Iowa State News Service Director, said the committee, made up mostly of university professors, turned to anonymous voting for the decision. Given the nearly 30-year history of Cat Hall naming controversy, committee members agreed to conduct its two votes electronically and keep the individual votes anonymous, Hunt said. The report cites an initial vote that took place August 25, in which members voted 9-6, to six, four votes shy of the two-thirds vote requirement to submit referral for a name change. The final vote was taken on November 3. Members of the committee also received 311 public comments from members of Iowa State's community, all of which were reviewed by committee members before the finalizing of the report. Nancy Tate, who served as executive director for the League of Women Voters for the United States for 15 years, voiced support for maintaining the name, stating that Carrie Chapman Catt played a significant role in U.S. history, mainly but not only by her years of leadership in expanding the franchise to women, adding that she strongly supports retaining her name on Cat Hall. Alex Bartell, a junior in industrial design at Iowa State, expressed disappointment with the committee's initial vote, stating that, quote, while Carrie Chapman Catt made much progress for the rights of wealthy white women, her racist remarks and behaviors toward... Excuse me, I lost my place. Let me begin that again. Alex Bartell, a junior in industrial design at Iowa State, expressed disappointment with the committee's initial vote, stating that while Carrie Chapman Catt made much progress for the rights of wealthy white women, her racist remarks and behaviors were dismissive and damaging toward people of color, and her discriminatory legacy is in direct conflict with Iowa State's mission and ideals. Complex to include nearly 250 apartments and townhomes. Mixed-use development coming to Urbandale's Urban Loop area. A mixed-use residential and commercial development with nearly 250 apartment and townhome units is coming to Urbandale near the Interstate 3580 and Iowa 141 interchange. The Loop Apartments and Townhomes will be located in a largely commercial area known as the Urban Loop, the land surrounding the 90-degree bend in the interstate. The Loop, a caliber development project, will stand on more than 10 acres immediately east of the Home Depot on Plum Drive. The $50 million development will center around a predominantly brick four-story building that will include 215 apartments, 124 underground parking spots, and about 5,300 square feet of commercial space on the ground floor, according to city documents. On the periphery, there also will be detached garages, 33 three-story townhome units with two-car garages, and small commercial lots for development between the main building and Plum Drive. Most of the apartments built will be one-bedroom units, but there also will be 66 two-bedroom units and six studio units. The central courtyard of the main building will include an outdoor pool. 
An outdoor amenity area also will include pickleball and basketball courts as well as a walking trail. Floor plans for the townhomes show that they will have two bedrooms and two and a half bathrooms. Some also will have a second floor deck. Units are expected to rent for $1,000 to $2,500 a month with construction anticipated to begin in 2024, said Nick Jensen with Caliber Development. City staff spent some time in the planning stage to accommodate the developer's desire to have less parking than required by city code and have larger signage than is typically allowed. Steve Franklin, Urbandale's Community Development Director, told the City Council that the Loop will have one parking space for each bedroom and one additional space for every four units. That comes out to 335 parking spots, which Franklin said is about 75 fewer than what the city would typically require, but it's in line with similar developments in Ankeny and Waukee. We are comfortable based on past experience and requirements of other cities that this will be enough parking spaces, Franklin said. The exception was made to provide as much space as possible for development of the commercial lots along Plum Drive, north of the main building. Two Medicaid dental providers are chosen. They'll provide benefits to over 825,000 Iowans. Iowa Medicaid has picked two providers, including a new entity to the state's program, to offer dental services to Medicaid members. This week, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services announced its intent to award contracts to Delta Dental of Iowa and Delta Quest USA Insurance Company to serve as dental carriers for those enrolled in Iowa's Medicaid and Well Kids in Iowa, or called Hawkeye, programs. The three-year contracts start July 1. These private companies will provide dental benefits for more than 825,000 Iowans, which represents the majority of those who are low-income or disabled enrolled in Iowa's $7 billion Medicaid program. They are separate from the three for-profit companies that provide most medical services under the program, Amerigroup Iowa, Molina Healthcare of Iowa, and Iowa Total Care. Delta Dental provides dental services to Medicaid members and has provided benefits under the program since the state privatized Medicaid in 2016. DentaQuest is a new entity to the state's program. The Boston, Massachusetts-based company is one of the largest Medicaid dental providers in the country with more than 33 million beneficiaries nationwide. State officials stated during the search for dental carriers, which began in April, that their intent was to procure contract with entities that demonstrated capacity to coordinate care and provide quality outcomes, according to the request for proposals issued earlier this year.
This effort drives the innovation that is needed to provide high-quality services to Iowans, Iowa Medicaid Director Elizabeth Matney said in a statement Monday. In our review of Delta and DentaQuest proposals, these plans demonstrated the capacity to coordinate care and improve outcomes for our members. I'm excited to have these partners join us as we work together to improve care and deliver on our strategic goals of improving Medicaid for the Iowans who rely on us for their care, she added. State officials say they are working closely with Delta Dental and DentaQuest in the lead-up to the July 1 contract launch date to transform and improve care for Iowans, according to a press release. While dental care has been provided through a managed care model for several years, the previous managed care contracts for dental services have not had the same comprehensive review as HHS has done with other managed care contracts, the press release states. How likely is it that a package will be stolen from your porch? In Iowa, it may be pretty high. The holiday season is approaching, and with that comes buying gifts for your friends and loved ones. You are more than likely ordering online and having these gifts delivered to your home. But that package being delivered to your doorstep the one that has clothes in it for your son or a new toy for your grandchild, it makes you a target for porch pirates. Porch pirates are people who steal the packages or your gifts off of your front doorstep. And chances are you have faced a package being stolen. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans have had their packages stolen after delivery, and Iowa ranks fourth in the nation for the worst porch pirates. Last year, according to an article from Forbes, 260 million packages were stolen off the doorstep, amounting to an estimated $19.5 billion worth of merchandise lost to the hands of these pirates. Forbes compiled larceny rates, or the theft of someone else's property, in relation to population, along with Google search rates of the phrase, package stolen, per state, to see which states were hardest hit by porch piracy. Iowa ranked among the top 10 in the nation, coming in at number four. According to the Forbes compilation, Iowa has a rate of 139 cases of larceny per 100,000 people and 20 searches about stolen packages per 100,000. The top five worst states for porch pirates. Number one, New Hampshire. Two, Oklahoma. Three, Delaware. Four, Iowa. Five, Colorado. The five states with the best rate of porch piracy. One, Florida. Two, Illinois. <clears throat> three, New York. Four, California. Five, Arizona. How do I stop porch pirates? There are measures you can take to make sure your packages, the ones that have your thoughtfully picked out gifts, aren't stolen from your doorstep and cause a Christmas disaster. So here are some of the top recommendations to prevent porch piracy. Package tracking. 
Tracking your package can make sure you get to your package as soon as it is delivered. Require a signature for delivery. When buying something online, you can usually choose whether or not a signature will be required when delivering a package to your door. But what if you aren't going to be home? Scheduled deliveries have your back. FedEx and UPS have the option to reschedule deliveries or to pick them up from your nearest facility. Amazon also has the option to pick up a package from a local facility. You can find UPS's scheduling service here and FedEx's service here. So get your package delivered to a P.O. box. Instead of dealing with the hassle of rescheduling a delivery or going out of your way to pick it up, you can always rent out a P.O. box and have your packages delivered there. Authorities identify stabbing victim as a 20-year-old woman. The woman who died of apparent stab wounds at a Des Moines hotel early Tuesday morning was identified as 20-year-old Des Moines resident Alyssa Ann Marr, authorities said. Des Moines police responded to the Econo Lodge Inn and Suites Fairgrounds on East 30th Street at about 2.30 a.m. November 14 to investigate a report of a stabbing, according to a Des Moines Police Department news release. Authorities found Mars suffering multiple traumatic injuries believed to be stab wounds, the, new th the news release said. She was taken to the hospital in critical condition but later died. Police later charged Brantley Austin Gage Rainey, 24, of Des Moines, with first-degree murder. A news release from Sergeant Paul Parizic said Rainey allegedly was in the room where the victim was discovered and had a knife with apparent blood on it. Rainey also allegedly matched a witness description. Rainey is being held on a $1 million bond. Police believe there's no ongoing danger or threat to the neighborhood, the release said. The Des Moines Police Department is still investigating the stabbing, authorities said late Tuesday afternoon. This is the 13th homicide of 2023 in Des Moines. Warren County zoning official fired after criticizing her boss. A Warren County administrator was forced to resign from her position in August after she criticized her supervisor's management of the zoning department. According to state records, Warren County Zoning Assistant Administrator Caroline Elwanger and her supervisor, Zoning Director Lindsay Bauman, attended an Iowa State Association of Counties conference on August 24th. While there, Elwanger approached Bauman and a colleague and began discussing issues that pertained to the county zoning office. Elwanger allegedly said she felt excluded from certain projects the office was undertaking and expressed concern over the manner in which Bauman led the office. A few days later, Elwanger arrived at work and was summoned to the county boardroom, where Bauman allegedly informed her she would be fired if she didn't sign a memorandum of understanding agreeing to immediately quit her job. At the time, Bauman allegedly declined to give a reason for the termination. Elwanger signed the memo, which guaranteed her a month's worth of wages and benefits. 
At a recent hearing dealing with Elwanger's application for unemployment benefits, Bauman contested the application and testified that Elwanger had been fired for insubordination. Administrative law judge Carly Smith ruled that Elwanger was eligible for benefits, finding that her conduct was, quote, merely an isolated incident of poor judgment and not insubordination. Elwanger should not have approached Bauman with her concerns during a conference, Smith ruled. However, there was no evidence that the employer had warned Elwanger she was not following reasonable instructions. An employee is entitled to fair warning that the employer will no longer tolerate certain performance and conduct. Council bluffs to discharge raw sewage into the Missouri River. A western Iowa city will divert millions of gallons of untreated wastewater into the Missouri River for up to 10 days as it works to repair a broken sewer line, according to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. The danger, the damaged sewer main in Council Bluffs was recently discovered when someone noticed wet soil in an area that was otherwise dry near Interstate 80, said Wendy Whitrock, a senior environmental specialist for the DNR. It is not clear what might have caused the leak. The city began discharging wastewater into the river early Tuesday at a rate of about 4 million gallons per day. The DNR has advised people to avoid the river downstream until the sewer line is repaired, but Whitrock said the effects of the wastewater on the river should be negligible. The Missouri is flowing at a rate of about 4 million gallons every 15 seconds, according to the U.S. Geological Survey data. Council Bluffs is Iowa's 10th largest city with about 62,000 people. The wastewater being released into the river is a little more than half of the amount the city processes each day at its water pollution control plant, according to the city's website. A spokesperson for the city did not immediately respond to a request for comment. There was no further, there was no other feasible option to store or dispose of the wastewater during the repair work, Whitrock said. There are no downstream cities in Iowa or Nebraska that use the water as a source of drinking water, she said. Iowa farmers close to finishing corn and soybean harvest. Iowa's soybean harvest is nearly complete and about 94% of the state's corn crop has been gathered from fields, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That is nearly 10 days ahead of the five-year average for both crops, which matured more quickly this growing season because of drought and high temperatures. The week of November 5th was more of the same. The state averaged about 7 degrees above normal and had almost no rain. The unseasonably warm and dry weather this past week offered Iowa farmers another suitable stretch to finish up harvest and tackle other farm work, said Mike Nag, the state's agriculture secretary. If the corn harvest continues at last week's pace, it will also be nearly complete by this week's end. 
Even though the percentage of unharvested corn is relatively small at 6%, that figure still represents a massive area because of the millions of acres that are planted each year in Iowa. About 750,000 acres were yet to be harvested at the start of this week. And we'll pick up a few briefs from National and World Report from USA Today before we go to birthdays. The first police student died after a brawl over headphones and a vape pen. This is from Las Vegas. A 17-year-old high school student in Las Vegas who authorities say accompanied a friend to a prearranged flight over a pair of headphones and a vape pen was killed when 10 students between the ages of 13 and 17 beat him in an alleyway around the corner from campus. The victim's father, Jonathan Lewis Sr., said his son was attacked while standing up for one of his smaller friends, the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported. Eight of the 10 teenagers were arrested Tuesday by Las Vegas police and the FBI on suspicion of murder in the November 1 beating of their classmate, Jonathan Lewis Jr., who died a week later. Two more students, whom investigators have not identified, will also face murder charges, police said. A family court judge on Wednesday ordered four of the students, who are 16 years or older, to be transferred to the adult court system, the Review-Journal reported. Hearings will be held at later dates to determine if the students under 16 will be charged as adults. And from Atlantic City, New Jersey... Atlantic City Boardwalk Fire Damages Casino Entrance. A fire broke out under the wooden Atlantic City Boardwalk on Wednesday, right in front of the entrance to Resorts Casino, melting part of its facade and burning the doors. But no one was injured and the facility was able to remain open, authorities said. Two restaurants near the fire were temporarily closed and hoped to reopen later Wednesday, Fire Chief Scott Evans and Resorts President Mark Glanitano said. The fire burst through the boardwalk's slats at around 4 p.m. and was driven by strong winds, Evans said. Black smoke boiled into the air as orange flames leapt beneath the resort's sign. The casino was accessible through a secondary boardwalk entrance as well as side entrances near the parking areas, Glanitano said. Evans said the two-alarm fire required 30 firefighters to extinguish, describing it as pretty serious. It was brought under control within about 40 minutes. The cause of the fire was not yet determined. And from Motala, Sweden, Sweden opens a state-of-the-art plant for sorting plastics. A new plastic sorting facility inaugurated in Sweden on Wednesday is being billed as the largest of its kind and one designed to double the amount of plastic packaging materials being recycled in the Nordic country. Thanks to cutting-edge technology, the Site Zero plant in the central part of Motala can sort up to 200,000 tons of plastic packaging a year, according to Sweden Plastic Recycling, a nonprofit company co-owned by Swedish plastics, food, and trade industry groups. The company said that it is more than any other sorting facility in the world. A unique feature of Site Zero is that it can separate up to 12 different types of plastic. The new plant will be able to send up to 95% of the packaging for recycling, minimizing the amount that is incinerated.
The world produces more than 430 million tons of plastic annually, two thirds of which are short-lived products that soon become waste, according to the United Nations Environmental Program, which said that in April.